Hi, it's Jamie, progressive number one, number two employee. Leave a message at the... Hey, Jamie, it's me, Jamie. This is your daily pep talk. I know it's been rough going ever since people found out about your acapella group, Mad Harmony, but you will bounce back. I mean, you're the guy always helping people find coverage options with the Name Your Price tool. It should be you giving me the pep talk. Now get out there, hit that high note, and take Mad Harmony all the way to nationals this year! Sorry, it's pitchy. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome, everyone, to Creating a Family, talk about adoption and infertility. Today, we're going to be talking about what adult transracial adoptees can teach us about adoption. I love this show. I think you will, too. Here's a sample of what you're going to hear. I feel strongly, as somebody who is a supporter of transracial adoption, that the colorblind approach that has been um, has has been used throughout the throughout the history of transracial adoption in this country is toxic and i think it can at, at the very least and at the very worst is deadly I'm Dawn Davenport. I am the director of Creating a Family, the National Adoption and Infertility Education and Support Nonprofit. You can find us online at creatingafamily.org. We are a weekly radio show, and we use the podcast model. That way you can listen whenever and wherever you want. You can also subscribe to the podcast by clicking the subscribe button on whatever app you're using to listen to this show. The Creating a Family radio show is underwritten by our corporate sponsor, Faring Pharmaceutical. Fighting cancer does not have to mean a loss of your fertility. If you or a loved one are facing cancer, you may be eligible for no-cost medications through Faring's Heartbeat Program. To learn more, go to their website, heartbeatprogram.com. This show, as well as all the resources provided by Creating a Family, could not happen without the generous support from our gold sponsors who believe in our mission of providing unbiased education and support for those struggling to create a family. Some of our wonderful gold sponsors include Holt International. Founded in 1956, they want every child to have a loving and secure home. They have programs that strengthen and preserve families that are at risk of separation, and they are a global Uh, They are a leader in the global community in finding families for children who need them and providing pre- and post-adoption support and education to those families. Hopscotch Adoption is another one of our gold sponsors. They are a Hague-accredited adoption agency, placing children from around the world, offering home study and post-adoption support services to residents of North Carolina and New York. We also have Vista Del Mar. They are a licensed and accredited nonprofit adoption agency with over 65 years of experience helping to create families. They have three adoption programs, a private infant program, an international program, and a foster care adoption program. In addition to some of our gold sponsors I just mentioned, we also have other sponsors whose generosity allows us to bring you this show. We ask that when choosing an adoption service provider, please consider choosing one from the Creating a Family directories, which you can find on the service provider page of our site. You can search by location, services provided, number of years in operation, just a host of factors that we think are important when choosing. And by choosing these directories, you support those who support us, and we thank you. Today we're going to be talking about what adult transracial adoptees can teach us about adoption. 
I am excited about this show. I am interviewing Rhonda Rorba. She is a she is well, she's the author of a new book. That's the most important thing. In their voices, Black Americans on Transracial Adoption. She is also an adult transracial adoptee and in as she was the co author with uh, Rita Simons of a trilogy of landmark books on transracial adoption. Uh, all the with uh, Bob and Henry at the titles. In their own voices is one of them. In their parents' voices and in their siblings' voices are the other two. Welcome, Rhonda, to Creating a Family. Thank you so much, Don, for having me. It's a pleasure. I thoroughly enjoyed this book. In their voices, Black Americans on transracial adoption. Um, the bulk of the book. Uh, is interviews you did with black Americans of various ages, and you talked with them about uh, a number of things. But but one of the things, and the one that I want to focus on here, is, uh, is the whole idea of transracial adoption, white parents raising children of color, and their suggestions and, uh, and their thoughts. And, and let me stop for a moment and just say at the onset, Transracial adoption is a, a very broad umbrella, and we need to acknowledge that. Although we often speak of it in terms of white parents adopting children of children of color, it can also be the reverse. Um, I've I've done a, a number of, of blog posts on that, so I just feel the need just because I've I'm connecting now uh, more and more with parents, uh, black parents who've adopted white children. So I want to be upfront with everybody. Yes, it can be that, but today we really are focusing more on the more common uh, definition of transracial adoption. And I also want to note that it also doesn't just mean white parents of black and biracial kids. It also includes white parents of Asian children, Hispanic children, children of any ethnicity that is different from the parents. So, again, I want to get that kind of out there at the beginning. All right. I, I want to start because there was a uh, – really at the very beginning, you, you post a series of questions, and as I was reading them, I was going, yep, 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 that's what we all wonder. <laughs> you said um, – uh, the implication do with the, these are the questions that parents ask who are considering or who have adopted uh, across racial barriers. Do these children grow up to be psychologically healthy? With which ethnic group will they identify? Will these children be able to fully function in dual societies when they become adults? Does race even matter? Yes, all those questions. That is what. Yeah, that is it. That's what we wonder. Uh, and, and, and not that we're going to answer them all, but anyway, I'm, I was very thankful that you know at the very beginning you you seemed to capture uh, the essence of uh, of what we parents wonder, and I bet you've heard that a lot with this book. Absolutely, absolutely, and and I and I thank you so much for putting all that information out there about the different types of transracial adoption. And I also, um, as a transracial adoptee and as an author of books on transracial adoption, also want to put that out there that I am very clear that transracial adoptions embrace um, all different combinations. I am uh, focusing on In Their Voices, um, looking at black children and white uh, homes specifically because of the contentious relations that blacks and whites have had in America. And I think uh, zooming into really understanding the communities and, uh, in which these black and biracial children are coming from and understanding America's history as it has uh, interacted with blacks uh, through slavery, through uh, Jim Crow, Reconstruction, Jim Crow, civil rights, and post-civil rights eras, we get a look at um, 
uh, why race matters when we uh, choose to uh, place children of color into white homes in this case. That is a great segue to the first question I want to begin with, and I, I was thankful that we got a question like this because um, I think this is something that a lot of people wonder about, and so this this is from Raquel. She says, my husband and I want to adopt and are considering adopting a black child. Why is it not okay to take the colorblind approach? It seems like this would be the best attitude for someone who is adopting a child of a different race. After all, we are all the same under the skin. So why should we draw attention to differences? I think Raquel um, asks a question that I think a lot of parents um, are, are, are wondering about. So let's talk about that. What's wrong with the colorblind approach? Yeah, and 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 that's a that's a very good question. And I'll tell you, after I uh, went through the process of writing in their own voices, oh, excuse me, in their voices, I um, I had to take a a deep look at uh, the colorblind approach. And 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 let me put this out here: um, I feel strongly as somebody who is a supporter of transracial adoption, that the colorblind approach that has been um, uh, has has been used throughout the throughout the history of transracial adoption in this country is toxic, and I think it can at, at the very least and at the very worst is deadly. And let me let me explain this. The while we want to uh, raise children to feel like they are part of our family, that they are not different, that is not the reality. The reality is that all children, regardless of their race, but in this case, black children, biracial children, or uh, any child of color that's placed in white homes, they are attached, connected to a history, a story. Um, and that story needs to be understood by the parents who are raising uh, these children. And also there needs to be an understanding on how we care and love for these children. So I'm African-American. I'm dark-skinned. I grew up in a uh, white Dutch family, um, and um, my family, of course, wanted to consider me just like all the other the other two uh, biological children they had. The difference is, I had kinky hair that needed to be managed differently than my brother, who was white with blonde hair at the time, or my sister with brown, long uh, hair, who who was Caucasian. My skin, how it, uh, you know, how it, um, how I managed it or needed to manage it, was different than uh, my siblings. So that's the that's the physical piece. But the biggest piece that I discovered in my own journey um, from infant to black womanhood is that um, race does matter. And it matters because not just within our own families and extended families, it matters as we segue out of our white families and out of our bubble of privileges or our um, uh, our, I would say, yeah, I would say the um, comfort of our white homes. 
When we leave our families and we go out into society, we go to colleges and universities, we go into corporate America, we are not being viewed as, oh, that's that's the Rorta daughter. She's she was raised in a white family. And what how we're being viewed as is we are being viewed as people of color. I am being viewed as a black woman in America. So those families who are adopting from Ethiopia or Haiti or um uh Chicago uh when they bring them into their homes and they then leave the homes into society we we we're now hearing that you know we and we're experiencing that we merge into the realities of black Americans in this country. You know, so I, I could, that's it, it where in so their voices right. starts. Exactly, and you are so right that it, it, it and identifying. I hear over and over again when talking with adult adoptees that it is really that sometimes in high school, but but usually a defining moment is when they leave home. Oftentimes, when they go to college. And it's at that moment that they're not being viewed under the the umbrella of protection, and not even protection. Just you know, after a while, we we run in our circles are not as big as we think, and after a while, we're old news. Uh, transracial adoptive families are. People see our children, and they see us, and they've seen us a million times, and they go, "Oh, that's that's Dawn's child," or in your parents' cases, we go, "That's that's Rhonda. She's you know Bob and Betty's daughter, or whatever," and it becomes old news. But when they move out of that, they're being viewed as as what they are, which is a person of color in the United States. Absolutely. And Raquel makes a good point. I understand wanting to raise a child as your own and wanting it to be a normal experience. However, transracial adoption is bold, it's complex, and um, as as Dr. Gina Samuel says, as uh, at University of Chicago, in, re- in recommending or endorsing in their voices, it's context tied, and so we cannot respond to that type of family building with colorblind lenses. It is not adequately preparing our children to build healthy self-esteem. It's not adequately uh, building our children to understand that they are they are, are are children who are worthy and are um, valid and are children that can embrace all of who they are. Color blindness says, "Well, honey, we love you, but you know what? Let's just forget about the hair." You know, don't worry about that. We're gonna, we're not gonna bring you to the hair salon. We're not gonna care for your hair. We're gonna just pretend that we don't have to manage it, or we can just manage it like the white, your white siblings. Color blindness is when a little girl or a little boy is called poop on the playground, and they go home and they're like, "Mommy, mommy." Johnny called me this, and Johnny's Johnny's parents are good friends with theirs. Colorblindness is well, he really didn't mean that. Um, 
you know what, we're going to see his family next week. I don't think it's a big deal. Don't worry about it, sweetheart. Color blindness is when you are in high school and kids are calling you nigger and it doesn't get addressed within the system. And and advocacy by the parents is not shown. Colorblindness is not healthy. And so we have to learn how do we advocate for our children of color in our families, and even in our families. If grandma and grandpa are giving Christopher, that's my brother, I'm just giving a hypothetical, Christopher $50 for Christmas or Hanukkah, or Jeannie $50 for Christmas or Hanukkah, but Rhonda doesn't get anything. That has to be addressed. Colorblindness would say, well, we don't want to rock the boat. Let's just forget that that happened. But being intentional is recognizing that we are no longer white when we adopt kids of color. We are now multiracial. We are a blended family. And because of that, we have to celebrate each and every person in this household, and we need to understand who they are, the background in which they come from, and we need to build relationships with white people who support our blended family and also people of color, particularly those that reflect the children in which we place in our homes. We need to be extremely intentional. So we have, I think, transracial adoption calls for added love, added care, added advocacy, and added relationship building. That's a really good point. I love that. Now, let me go back to a question that uh, you, you or to something you stated before. You give the example of, uh, of a child coming home and saying, I got called poop on the uh, playground. And so from an adoptive parent's or from any parent's standpoint, the first thing you have to figure out is, okay, how do I handle this as a parent? Um, and and is this a racial thing? Do I need to? Should I should I treat it as a racial thing? Should I treat it as a as a kid being a brat thing? Um, how, when do you? How do you make the decision as a parent of of you want to advocate for your child? Do you want to support your child? Do you want to encourage your child to keep you in the loop and let you know things? But you don't want to overreact. You want to react the appropriate amount of react. So uh, let's talk some about that, either using that example or other examples of how to handle when we're not sure whether it's racism. Right. And and, and, and let me give a context here for that, that question, which is a very good question. First of all, part of the reason why so many uh, white adoptive parents that I have spoken with um, struggle with that question, you know, how how do we respond appropriately to a situation and not overreact or not underreact or or how how do we um you know develop relationships with people that look like all these are great questions but with within a vacuum right so what i want i want first transracial adoptive parents to understand is the context of um recognizing the history of blacks in America, and I know it's going to get to that simple question. I think when we are operating in a vacuum and don't understand the context, we don't know why we do what we do or why we should do what we do. But 
when we when you look at the injustices that so many blacks have had to 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 endure in America i mean it, it, jim crow wasn't that long ago when somebody who was black a black male couldn't look at a white woman um uh, too intently because based on the perception of that white woman or white male next to her uh you could get lynched for stuff like that um being Jim Crow, the image of somebody who was frumpy and um, uh, not smart and not put together, those are images that um, are still out there on television, stereotypical issues, these types of things. So, so first and foremost, I guess I want to say to, I want to say to adoptive parents is that we have to take even the smallest things, seriously. Because we have to make sure that we build our children to know that they're worthy. We have to take them seriously so that we are ma- feel, making them understand that their concerns and uneasiness are valid. So first and foremost is when a child comes to you as a parent not and and says that they were called poop on the on the playground that is something that 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 is very serious to that child that child felt ostracized isolated and demeaned mm-hmm. and so parents need to sit down with the child first and foremost and let them understand that they are 100% in tuned with their child, and they hear what that child is saying. Now, depending on the age, the child's eight and this happens, you know, at that point you can say, honey, how how do you feel if mommy, you know, uh, talks to uh talk to the teacher about that because some of these little kids they they are very outspoken on how that but but ultimately the parent has to make the decision on how they want to handle it it may just be a conversation with the teacher and Johnny's parents together just to have a discussion it may be a situation where the institution wants to talk about cultural sensitivity it, it can be a discussion but 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 first and foremost there needs to be the the, the adopted child transracial adoptee needs to understand that the parents take them seriously and aren't overlooking this and that's because we message. need to learn how to advocate for ourselves ultimately and, and so the message is that, and let me let me back. The message is that that if the child is bringing it to you, it's important to them, and and, mm-hmm. and that's the and that's what needs to be acknowledged. Is it's uh, you're not going to be overreacting if you react if the child is bringing yeah. it to you. Yeah. And and, and and I think and it would. Mm-hmm. I was just going to say the book. Um, one of the the aspects of the book is it's it's. Well, the, the 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 centerpiece of the book, the 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 beginning, the, the middle part of the book, rather. You're, I'm sorry, the book is in their voices: Black Americans on Transracial Adoption. The middle part breaks down by age. You interviewed, I think, 16 Black adults, some adoptees, some many of them not. But, um, and it, uh, it it goes through, and 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 through your interviews, you get a feel for the contextual history of what it was like. In one of the one of the people you interviewed was. In their nineties, right? 
Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so I mean, we get a, you get a feeling of what it was like um, to be black during that period of time. So that's a, a good, uh, the book itself is a good education for white adoptive families on on the contextual history of what it was like to be black during various stages in, in history. Now, go ahead, I, I interrupted you, but I was just wanted to get out that that was uh, something that was in the book itself, a, kind of a, a historical walk through through um, the black experience in America. Right, and 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 let me also be very clear that um, you know, Black Americans, just like all uh, all groups, are not monolithic, and that there is a variety of experiences, just mm-hmm. like in many white communities, of of people. There's 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 people have excuse me, people have a variety of experiences. They have varieties of insights and uh, varieties of ways of doing things. So certainly um, uh, the black community is, 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 is very sophisticated and multidimensional. Uh, saying that, they share a common history here in America. And so I thought it was very interesting to bring that perspective out because here, here's the reality that we face uh, today. Um, there was a recent study done uh, by uh, scholars by the name of Rose Kreider and Elizabeth Raleigh um, in, in uh, 2011, and they looked at, um, looked at racial socialization, how uh, parents are adapting to uh, uh, their children of color. But they looked, this is very interesting to me, they looked at residential patterns of uh, many families, um, particularly transracial adoptive families, and they compared it to the residential patterns of white couples raising white children and interracial uh, couples. And, of course, transracial adoptive families lined up to the residential patterns of white couples raising white children. I was not shocked about that. No, that makes sense. Yeah. So what was shocking, though, was that some of our families, now now these were families primarily who adopted Asian children, um, but, but some of our transracial adoptive families are living in whiter communities than the average white child raised by a white couple. Mm-hmm. So when Raquel and so many parents around the country say to me, why does race matter and why can't we be colorblind? Because of the history of America, but also because most of our families, while they say they're colorblind, are living in predominantly white spaces, are attending predominantly white places of worship, have predominantly white friends, and are making decisions specific to their black and brown children based on white input. Mm -hmm. So... What I think is incredible is how we in this country have been able to place children of color in white homes and not build with 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 tremendous intentionality build relationships into the communities in which these children are coming from because the answers and the struggle that struggles that our 
families have are not, they're not contained in a vac- vacuum. We're not going to find the answers to how we raise competent, strong children of color and white families simply by relying on white spaces. We need white spaces, but we also need to have spaces that reflect the experiences in which our children come from as well. Because while black America is struggling with how come our young children are being gunned down in this country. Why are our children disproportionately being placed into the 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 prison industrial system? Why are our children in this country being minimized and being um underestimated for their talent, their intellect and their participation? These are the questions that so many communities of color are asking about how their children are treated. Those are the same questions that transracial adoptive families must be concerned with and I believe build partnerships with communities of color because their children share the same history as all people of well in this case black Americans in this country. Does that sort of make sense? It makes great sense. And not only do they share the same history, they also share the same reality currently. And And that's my next, yes. Yeah, exactly. You are listening to Creating a Family, Talk About Adoption and Infertility. We are so glad to have you with us on this show today talking about what adult transracial adoptees can teach us about adoption and about adoptive parenting. We primarily keep in touch with our audience through our weekly e-newsletter. We have two. We have one for adoption and one for infertility. You get to choose when you sign up. Uh, We let you know about the latest developments in the world of adoption, as well as the upcoming week's blog and show topics, as well as some resources we uh, have, either new resources or or existing resources that we've added. To sign up for our weekly newsletter, you can go to the top right side of any page of our website, creatingafamily.org. You know, one of the things that uh, identity formation we know, uh, or we have been, uh, Eric Erickson was a great researcher, that uh, psychologist who talked about identity formation being one of the primary goals of adolescence, and we that's for all adolescents. And, and it certainly goes to, to hold for adopted people, and, and identity formation is more complicated uh, for adopted adolescents. And then if you throw in the the fact of transracial adoption, you also add that piece of racial identity. And we know that racial identity is a crucial aspect, probably the world over, but but certainly particularly when you live in a diverse society and you are a minority, Uh, So, i.e. particularly in the United States where most of our audience is. So some of the earlier research on transracial adoption – focused primarily on younger kids and their families and their parents. I was so glad to see that you questioned this because I also questioned this because we know that that what you and I had talked about earlier, that as children age, their needs change and their experiences change, whereas a, a young child or, you know, child 8-year-old or 4-year-old, where some of the earlier research was done on those age groups, their experience is going to be quite different, and their developmental stage is quite different. So, uh, And ultimately, our children are going to need tools to maneuver through life as a member of their racial group. So I was really thankful that, that you pointed out that, that some of the – 
that we need to be when we're talking about research. We do have to kind of look carefully at um, at the ages of children that we're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. And and you know, it's interesting. Uh, one of the wonderful journeys that I have gone on um, as a transracial adoptee and a student of transracial adoption is building this uh, this partnership with Dr. Rita Simon. She passed away uh, a couple years ago. Um, but to be able to collaborate with her for almost 20 years and 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 write the uh, Simon Rorda uh, trilogy books of transracial adoption was not just a gift to others, but for me as an adoptee, it was huge. And it, and, it, and it was huge because I was struggling with my identity, and I was struggling with how do I love and embrace my uh, incredibly wonderful family that's white and also embrace who I am as a black woman um, and who I am as uh, somebody who is married to a black man. That's a that's a that's a struggle. It's a struggle. And so uh these books have helped me. Um that first book in their own voices, transracial adoptees tell their stories. That book showcased twenty four black and biracial adoptees who basically made the case and for why I did in their voices, Black Americans on Transracial Adoption. Many of them said, we love our families that we were adopted into. We are thankful that we were adopted and that we've had the opportunities in life that we've had, many coming from foster care systems in, in, in this nation, including me. Um, However, there was an emptiness and a void when it when they started to talk about how they stumbled through their figuring out their identity. And you mentioned Eric Erickson, which I indicated in my book as well. All teenagers struggle with their identity. But if you can imagine then being black and biracial in Susan or Iowa, in Essex Junction, Vermont, in St. Joe, Michigan, where you are one of very few people that look like you, and you're struggling with, how do I manage my hair? How do I do that when I don't even have ethnic hair care products? How do well, I how walk do I feel down... With my, with my hair and my skin, how do I? What do I reflect outward? I mean, how do I feel as a beautiful woman or you know, a teenage girl? Absolutely, Don, yeah. you are on point on this subject. You absolutely, and and as a young black man walking down these streets, knowing that on the nightly news there is somebody that. They air doing something horribly wrong. How do people perceive me? And so we're, we're trying to struggle for our identity in places that don't affirm our blackness mm-hmm. and within a context where we don't even know the history of transracial adoption or the history that has built where we are today. So in their voices came... Because I, too, was looking at the research that you're talking about, the traditional research that that started with Dr. Rita Simon and other scholars in 1971 and went to 1992, that basically uh, was a response 
to what happened short a year after I was adopted, um, and not to confuse your 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 um, uh, listeners. So let me let me just give preface on that. Is that in 1972, when uh, the National Association of Black Social Workers went on record expressing their concern? about transracial adoption. They had seen a spike in 1971, relatively small, but it was a spike, 2,574 black and biracial children were adopted, and I was one of them. And in 1972, they questioned questioned many things, but one of the main things that caught my eyes and ears is they questioned can, can white parents raise black children. In fact, they didn't just question it. They they basically said, we don't believe that to be true. I was we going to say, when you were saying they that, questioned, I was going to say, no, they really didn't question it. Yes. <laughs> they opposed yes, it. Yes. Yeah. Some, some, yeah, some, but the statement that came out in 1972 was harsh. It said, black children do not belong in white homes because of psychological issues and that these children will be separated from their communities of origin and that ultimately they could grow up confused and ill-prepared. Now, I'm paraphrasing that. The statement was much more clear, much more harsh, and they concluded that this form of transracial adoption is cultural genocide. They were also concerned with... um, uh, they were inequality within the foster care system and the lack of um, effort uh, adoption agencies, the foster care system took in in in, in preserving families, black families. So and, and in finding and, black families for adoption and both finding and black families to yeah, both. raise these children. It, it, Absolutely. So, so there were yes, yeah. yeah, so there were a multitude of concerns. But when you say that children of color, and this is how I took it as a transracial adoptee based on the the, the many statements that they have said over the years in their position statements, when I see that as a black individual raised in a white family, and at that point a teenager, young adult, when I really looked at the statement, what that is telling me is, well, then I'm set up for failure. And as a person, I don't believe you set people up for failure. And I certainly don't like being set up for failure. So I, I looked at these statements and the positions that they held on to over the many years. They, they're not as strong right now on the issue, but they still have these – they have not revised any position statements to say we're in support of children in white black children and white families and we're going to help them out and we're going to sit at the table of within the transracial adoption community and work to build linkages so i haven't heard any of that language um so i look at that sentiment and then i also look at the the, the body of traditional research which is basically like you said looking at how children respond to their white adoptive homes 
and how white parents are interacting with these children. Well, we as a as transracial adoptees, we've already been abandoned at least once. And I can tell you personally, I didn't want to be abandoned again. I wanted to fit I wanted to be accepted in my family, so I adapted. I did, along with every other transracial adoptee or many of us, I did what most Americans struggle doing. I went past my comfort zone, and I took on the culture, the the, the nuanced language, the food, the rhythm, the values, the priorities, all of that I took on. But what I did is I sacrificed I sacrificed the, the the also so much that made me special. And that's where I needed to find balance. And so I so in their voices was a response to in their own voices, but it was also saying we need the black community. We need the black community. Our families need the black community. And um, we need to bring them um, into our lives front and center. And so I do, and I will say that the NABSW had points of concern. They absolutely had a point to question or, or, or to be concerned about the racial identity of these kids placed in white homes and many times mostly white communities. But what they didn't have the right, in my opinion, to do is to then wash their hands of that and not circle around to check up on these children of color because we have been wounded in one hand from not understanding our racial identity early on. We've been wounded by not having African-American godparents and African-American mentors and seeing people of color and other minority groups at our dinner tables. We've been wounded when we don't believe we're worthy because we have a wide nose, a big hips, a big butt, you know, kinky hair. Um, So, This book, In Their Voices, Black Americans on Transracial Adoption, is a gift that I gave to our families, which are growing throughout this country, a gift to give to them and to give to the little girl in me to say, I am going to help bring some incredible people to the table to share their stories and through their lens serve as a support to adoptees of color and then also um, transracial adoptive families. And that's a perfect segue to what I want to, to do now, which is to turn to some of the more practical advice that you give in the book. I'm going to quote from the end of the book on page 309. You say in the book, let me give the title again, In Their Voices, Black Americans on Transracial Adoption. And this is a a book that I think will be very helpful for transracial adoptive parents. You write, as white parents, the successful adoption of children of color requires you to be willing to experience the close encounters with racism that your children and you as parents will have and to be prepared to talk to your children about them. 
Ultimately, you will need to examine your own identities as white people, going beyond the idea of raising a child of color in a white family to reach a new understanding of yourself and your children as members of a multiracial family. And and so and, and then I want to read two uh, questions that I think uh, that we received from our audience that are again going to lead us into. So, what do we as parents do? One came from Natalie. She said. What is the most important thing we can do to instill, ensure, and reinforce as Caucasian parents who adopted a black Hispanic child? And Allison says, some adoptees of color in transracial adoption might feel detached from their culture. When they become adults, they don't know how to relate to other black people and deal with a society that makes judgments based on skin color. I live in a predominantly Caucasian neighborhood, and I am Caucasian. I try my hardest to make sure my children who are black are connected to their culture and understand how society sees them. We often talk about cultural events concerning black people and how it may affect them. What else can I do to prevent identity crisis? Or, sorry, identity issues, and teach my children how to deal with a racist society who treats me and them differently. So let's move. Um, let's, uh, uh, I always love when I get these questions, which are, tell me the one most important thing. That, is so, that so reflects me. Okay, yes, just distill it down. Just, you know, it's a high point. So anyway, yes, thank you, Natalie, a woman after my own heart. So if you could pick one thing, and if you don't, I hate those questions when they're asked to me, so I always say one of my favorite things or one of my, the most important things. Feel free to, and feel free to list more, list more than one. So for parents who are either considering it or have already adopted a child across racial lines, what do we do to help our children? What can we do? What's the most important thing we can do to help our children be raised as strong, black, proud uh, black Americans or Asian Americans or Korean Americans or whatever hyphenated American we, we, we are speaking of? Very good question. Uh, thanks, Natalie and Allison, and, and for you, Dawn, for framing that. Um, I think, uh, first of all, uh, having these discussions um, through uh, creating a family podcast and many other places, I think that that is huge. Education is huge. Uh, picking up books uh, by and about transracial adoptees and their uh, multifaceted families is also huge. Number one is educating ourselves about the complexities of transracial adoption. That's number one. I think is very huge. I think the other thing is, you know, and I indicate in the book, um, for those who have, you know, children of color, let's say they're African-American or Latino, um, Guatemalan, go to a church that that has um, uh, people who look like um, – uh, your family, and it's even if you're, and, and again, you know, I'm not assuming everybody is religious out there, but um, I think a place of worship where you can connect with people that look like uh, your kids um, is 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 very important just to understand that aspect in the black community, within your community. Um, talking to a pastor, I think, is huge. The other thing is is that many of us in the workplace um, may have uh, people of color that work in the cubicle next to us, in the hallway across from us. Sometimes just striking a... Um, general conversation with them is very helpful and then building if you can a relationship um that um where you feel comfortable just 
saying, wow, you know, my son, you know, is in is in choir or is is in uh, so- soccer, and you know, um, this happened. Just like a, a conversation where you get acclimated and comfortable with people that look like uh, your child, connecting um, at the grocery store with people that look like just just striking up conversation to to develop a comfort level. I think the other important thing that I know as I would have appreciated as a transracial young transracial adoptee is that I would have loved it if my mother brought me to the hair salon um, and if I had a black beautician at a very young age uh, to to put her hands in my hair and to teach me how to take care of it, um, I would have loved if my parents um, would have um, been more intentional, um, and they did a lot of wonderful things, but been more intentional been to um, my emotional being, talking to me about how I'm doing within the family. I mean, it's it's not easy all the time. And just I, I wish that I had more of a emotional connection with my parents and where I felt comfortable and confident that I could share with them what what was going on in my life um, uh, and many things that had to do with race. Um, but let me tell you what they did well, and this is, this is something that um, has probably helped me become who I am today. Is they they did join a church um, in Washington. Well, I hope DC. you're going to tell the Miss Myrtle story. It is you Myrtle. Myrtle? Gonna, you read <laughs> the book Dawn from front I cover do, to I back do. cover. I'm, I did. I'm, I'm going to actually. I was going to raise that story because I loved it. Please tell the Miss Myrtle story. Yes. Yeah, so my uh, parents, um, right after I was adopted um, in upstate New York, they moved to the Washington, D.C. area, which is a far more diverse community than where we were um, in East Palmyra, New York. Um, and they joined this Dutch Christian Reformed Church, but it was based in Washington, D.C. There were families from the community who were African-American that were also members there. Well, um as as I'm told by 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 my um by Myrtle, um she was playing the organ um when the day she saw me sitting with my family and there was, you know, not running down my nose, my hair was a hot mess, I had a sp- spaghetti strap um that was down my shoulder and she just looked at this. And she comes over after church. She comes over to my parents, and she says, "I don't, I don't approve of this." And I don't believe she knew the term was transracial adoption or interracial adoption. But she said, "I don't approve of this." But she did say, "But since Rhonda is your daughter, it looks like we will be raising her together." And so my father, blonde hair, blue eyes, tall man looks at Myrtle, who's African-American, and he's like, yes, ma'am. And I think that was the first time this white man ever said yes, ma'am, to anybody. But (laughs) Myrtle and her family, they loved me. They 
cared for me. They worked hand in hand with my parents because they had the same, both Myrtle and my parents had the same values, the same priorities for education, for work ethic, for um, being a, a, a productive person in society and giving back. And so there were times when my parents would try to discipline me tell me what I needed to do better. But there were things, there were times where my father was like, hmm, I think you need to talk to your godmother. So he would call Myrtle, and Myrtle would, and then I would go to Myrtle's house. And there is a certain kind of way, you know, sometimes I think black women in my world can say things to me. It's the same message that my parents had, but it's just said a little bit differently. And I'm like, yes, ma'am, I understand. I won't be doing that anymore. You know, and so it is that kind of village of people that care deeply about that child. And Myrtle, because she cared deeply about me and pushed me, prodded me, prayed for me, disciplined me, celebrated me, because she cared and was so invested in me, she built an incredible relationship with my parents and my siblings. And so um, that I think that that's the message that I want to say. There are so many incredibly beautiful, powerful things that can happen when our our families that are so special – and so um, I think our families, uh, transracial adoptive families, are, are, are beautiful, powerful, dynamic, all of that, when we own who we are. Um, but when we connect with communities of color and there is that synergism, that synergy, excuse me, that happens, um, it doesn't just help me. It empowers my brothers and sisters. It gives them clarity about why it's so important that they learn themselves to move into communities of color with comfort because they, too, have a black sister. So um, the, the stories that can happen through godparents, through mentorship, through um, um, relationship building, within the child's community of color or ethnic community are just extremely dynamic. You know, and listening and, and initially reading the the story about uh, your family's uh, relationship with Myrtle, and, and it goes on that, that it became uh, very valuable to both families. I mean, I think it sounded like it became a truly important relationship, and Myrtle's son was actually the best man in your brother's uh, wedding. So theirs was a, a tight friendship that was formed over the years as well. But two things that stand out to me, and one is that I, I was putting myself in your parents' position and thinking if somebody came up and said, I don't approve of, of what you are, it, there would have been a very strong temptation on my part to become defensive and to write that person off. And your parents didn't, and they didn't, I suspect, were probably maybe a little bit because they were afraid of her, but also because yeah. they they valued they perceived a value there, and they were willing to get out of their comfort zone because their comfort zone would have been to write her off and say, you don't approve of me, I don't approve of you, don't tell me how to raise my kid. But they didn't do that, and maybe that's their personality, they wouldn't have done that anyway, but a lot of people would go there, and they didn't do that, and they were willing to be out of their comfort zone 
and perhaps it wasn't out of their comfort zone, but for many people it would be, to form a tight, lifelong friendship with a family uh, of a different race. And they were willing to do that. Mm-hmm. And and that that is a gift that both my parents gave to me that uh, you can't even put a value on. That 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 is uh, an incredible gift to give to a child because what that taught me is that, um, you know, I'm always going to have struggles. We're always going to have struggles. You know, I can be called the N-word any day of the week. I'm just as black as anybody else <laughs> if I can be called that word and if I can have to deal with uh, some of the, the, the inequalities in society. But what Myrtle taught me and what my parents gave me is the opportunity to learn strategies and to develop uh, skills that help me navigate that and keep focused on what I'm called to do. We are all here in this world, I believe, for a purpose. And we are meant, I believe, to fulfill whatever that purpose is. It just, with unique obstacles, um, can be very daunting, very difficult. Myrtle and the mentors uh, that have helped me, um, and then later my godfather and his family, um, they taught me that I am worthy, that I am smart, that I have a right to be here, and that I am to love and embrace my hair, my body, my big hips, my wide nose, and that um, I can center all of that into being the person I am today and, 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 and push through obstacles to achieve what I'm here to achieve. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I'm sitting here just shaking my head up and down. Yes, yes. Uh, <laughs> the, um, at the end of the book, uh, you have, it's one of the appendix, you talk about a guide, I think it's called a guide, um, for uh, for parents. Uh, I, I Again, I recommend that this that, that parents buy this and, and, and follow that. One of the things you talk about that I thought was so uh, uh, cogent was the Ask yourself, or this is for parents who are considering whether or not they should adopt transracially, ask yourself what your views are of your adopted child's ethnic community of origin. Um, that's such an important thing. What are, what, are your, what are the stereotypes that on some level you might have bought into? Um, and, and including some of the more positive stereotypes, you know that, that that's important. It's also important to think about what do you really think, and, and not just what you think of a child of that culture, I mean of that ethnicity, or that race, but also adults of that race, um, because it's hard for us as parents to not pass on the, the our, our what we truly believe. If you are afraid of adult black men. And uh, are on some level think that that they are uh, if you're walking and they're there that they're going to harm you. What are you going to be passing on to your child? Um, and you talked about that growing up, realizing that you had incorporated stereotypes, whether or not your parents taught you that or whether you had just seen it through society. But that even as a young black girl, you had had bought into some of the stereotypes. 
Absolutely. And and that's, again, the reason why I did this book, is that um, I wanted to introduce honest voices. And, again, I didn't know how they were going to respond to whether they liked transracial, approved of transracial adoption or not. But people who could be these positive role models because um, even in my family, um, uh, I I dealt with 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 those same stereotypes that Americans, every American deals with when they turn on the TV, when they um, see the billboards as they're driving on the highway, um, that uh, in this country we, we, we minimize people of color. And that kind of digestion of images and um, looping messages infiltrate transracial adoptive homes as well, even even um, uh, permeate into the minds of uh, adoptees of color. And, and that's what happened to me. Uh, my parents, and I don't know if we have time for another story. Um, but, back to uh, our last pa- one. Yes, go ahead. Mm-hmm. Okay, so uh, my father, who is from Netherlands, I is, is um, – very eclectic in his thought, and he sat my brother and I down uh, when I was 10 and my brother uh, was 11, and he said, okay, he says, do you want to live underground, do you want to live on a boat, or do you want to live above ground? Well, my brother was like, I don't care, and I was like, excuse me, Daddy, I care, and I was like, well, I don't want to live on a boat because I want to step outside onto grass, and I don't want to live underground because I want to see the sun rise and set. And so I really want to live on ground. And so my dad said, okay, we'll build a house on ground and and above ground. So um, he decides to move into a neighborhood in Tacoma Park, Maryland, that was predominantly black. And he decides to build a house on top of the hill and he chooses to build a geodesic dome, one of these round homes. You can see a lot of them in California. And they, in this home, the geodesic dome had windows all around it, squares, hexagons, triangles. And my mother did not do much with curtains. And so at the base of the hill, there were, on any given evening, people looking from the community up to this house. And I'm sitting here as a black person in a white home. My hair is is not put together. I don't know who I am. I'm struggling, struggling for my identity. Well, at that same time, my brother and I had a paper route. He had one and I had one, and we had to go down the hill to the adjacent neighborhoods. And I would remember that I would have to wake up really early and and go down the hill with my cart and my bag so that I could avoid anybody on the street. And I don't it was a subconscious thing and I manipulated it such that it worked beautifully. I could do this and not even be interrupted by anybody on the street and I could collect money on Saturday and um it it worked. I was fine up until one day as I'm going down the hill with my cart and my bag 
I stop, and I can feel somebody's breath on my face. I freeze. I drop my cart, my bag. I run up the hill. I go into the bathroom, and I throw up. My parents are there, and I'm crying. I'm shaking. I'm sick. And my dad says to me, honey, what is wrong? And I say, somebody said hi to me. And my dad looks at me. I look at my dad. And I realized, my internal compass realized, if I am responding to this black man who's who just simply said hello to me in this way, how am I going to look in the mirror and embrace myself? So that was a huge uh, reality check uh, that made me take my next steps, and that's in the book, take my next steps to discover more of my identity. Um, but it, it was gut-level life-changing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and that's not even to say that your parents had in any way tried to instill that in you, but how we view our children's culture, it's important for us to know as parents uh, so that we can be intentional of providing role models that counter any of the negatives. Um, that, 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 and we need to work on our own. We need to expose ourselves to role models that make us realize that uh, any time we say all anything, uh, and uh, it's, it's usually wrong. And so, um, yeah, that was a poignant story. Thank you and so, yes, so much. So yes, you're welcome. Yeah. You are more than welcome. Uh, Rhonda Rorda for being on our Creating a Family show today. I truly appreciate it. Uh, and uh, we're going to come back to in just a moment and talk about uh, where to get the book. Uh, first, I'd like to take a moment to thank a few more of our gold sponsors and to remind you that it is through their generous support that we can bring you this show as well as all the resources at Creating a Family. We have Children's Connection, Inc. They are an adoption agency with offices throughout Texas providing domestic infant adoption, embryo donation adoption, home studies, and post-adoption support. We also have the law offices of James Fletcher Thompson, a South Carolina firm committed to adoption and assisted reproductive law and Nightlight Christian Adoptions. They have been providing adoption services for more than 50 years with offices in California, Colorado, South Carolina, and Kentucky. Now, uh, if you first of all, if you've enjoyed the show and you want to help us grow, please do us a favor and give us a ranking on iTunes. Um, that's how iTunes knows uh, how to uh, suggest this show to other people, and it would really help us out, and we would truly appreciate it. Now, the book we've been talking about today is, in their voices, Black Americans on Transracial Adoption. I know that everyone wants to go out and buy that book, so there's a couple of options you have. Of course, you can get this book online at either Amazon or Barnes & Noble, uh, and so obviously that's an option. Uh, independent bookstores, uh, many of them are carrying the book, and if they aren't, one of the beauties of independent bookstores is that they are almost always willing to order the book for you. You can also, quite frankly, many libraries are, are getting this book, so you can ask your, believe it or not, I don't know if a lot of people know this, but you can ask your library to buy or to do interlibrary loans, so you can probably get the book that way as well. Or it is being published by uh, Columbia University Press, and you can go to their website to get it. And if you would uh, do, uh, Rhonda, a favor as well, when you are on Amazon or Barnes & Noble, give the book a review. Uh, reviews really do help others know whether or not they uh, want to buy the book, and that would be a helpful thing that you can do. 
to get more information about Rhonda and speaking and, and just in general her writings, you can go to her website, which is RhondaMRorda.com. I'm going to spell that out, Rhonda, R-H-O-N-D-A. You know that, M, and then Rorda, R-O-O-R-D-A.com. And to get more information or if you want to participate and continue the discussion, I'm going to be blogging on uh, this topic tomorrow, so you can drop into our blog tomorrow and, and keep the conversation going. I thank you so much for joining us today, everyone, and I look forward to seeing you again next week. Hi, it's Jamie, progressive number one, number two employee. Leave a message at the... Hey, Jamie, it's me, Jamie. This is your daily pep talk. I know it's been rough going ever since people found out about your acapella group, Mad Harmony, but you will bounce back. I mean, you're the guy always helping people find coverage options with the Name Your Price tool. It should be you giving me the pep talk. Now get out there, hit that high note, and take Mad Harmony all the way to nationals this year! Sorry, this is pitchy. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. And now, an ad from Dad. <clears throat> all right, save money on car insurance when you bundle home and auto with Progressive. Can I take these off? All right. What is this? This looks good. Wow. That's what, man. Where did you get this? I'm talking to you with the hair. Yeah, where did you get this? It's good stuff. That's solid. That's not veneer. That's solid stuff. Progressive can't save you from becoming your parents, but we can save you money when you bundle home an auto. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discounts not available in all states or situations.